Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Welcome to Pop Culture Confidential, a part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. The biggest television show in the world. That's what we're going to be talking about. Squid Game, the South Korean dystopian drama by writer-director-producer Hwang Dong-yuk, is currently on track to becoming Netflix's most popular show ever, reaching number one in 90 countries. The show is about a mysterious survival game played by many hundreds of competitors. They play children's games facing violent death, competing for a prize of 46 billion won. It's spectacular, exciting, edge-of-your-seat, and brutally violent. It's infused with themes of class divide, exploitation of the poor, and financial desperation, themes that resonate all over the world. I'm very happy to have with me Korean professor Dr. Ariam Jong. She researches and teaches Korean film, theater, and performance, including South Korea's modern culture and K-pop. She's taught at UCLA and UC Santa Barbara and is now at the Sichuan University Pittsburgh Institute in China. Dr. Jong joins me to talk about these themes resonating globally, the political and artistic impact of Squid Game, the director, the actors, and much more. Dr. Jong, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for inviting me here. So as someone who researches and follows Korean popular culture as closely as you do, how and when did you notice that Squid Game was exploding all over the world? I think there were two moments. I mean, aside from the fact that uh, my timeline on social media was just, you know, everybody having discussions and theories about, you know, the show after they binge watched it. Um, I got a lot of requests, uh, like you, to talk about Squid Game for uh, media and press. And aside from, you know, boy bands like BTS, uh, this was the first time I think uh, so many people wanted me to talk about it. And also, you know, I teach in China. I'm currently based in Chengdu, China. I'm teaching at a university here. And it's a place where Netflix is actually uh, illegal. And so a lot of Chinese people don't have access to Netflix or, you know, a lot of the social media platforms we use like Facebook or Instagram or YouTube. But I've noticed a lot of my colleagues, Chinese colleagues, and also students watching the show and discussing it, you know, asking me about my ideas. And so that's when I noticed, wow, you know, this is a place where you can't actually see Netflix but everybody's already watched the show and they're talking about it. So that's when I noticed how big it was getting. 
Um, I want to ask you about how it's resonated in South Korea, but let me start internationally. What is the success of the show? Why does it resonate everywhere? Yeah, I think that the show has a lot of factors, a lot of themes that not only South Koreans, but also a lot of international viewers can resonate and relate to. For example, the socioeconomic inequalities, the, the gap between the rich and poor, you know, this competition for all these resources, uh, trying to move upwards, uh, that upward mobility, and also you know, the different power dynamics between uh, race and different genders. And I think these are very universal themes that you see not only in South Korean film and television, but, you know, almost everywhere in the universe. So I think those kind of themes really resonated with not just, you know, Korean or just Asian viewers, but also a lot of, you know, international viewers who don't speak the language and maybe uh, play very different childhood games, um, as you've seen from Squid Game. So I think those were some of the main common themes that the show did really well and viewers could resonate. Because um, I mentioned the childhood games, I think it's also interesting how the show's setting, you know, the competition survival setting, it's not something new. We've all seen it before in the Hunger Games and uh, the Japanese film Battle Royale. But I think the setting's simplicity and the predictability, I mean, we all knew who was going to win, right? Yes. And also like... <laughs> I did. Very... I didn't get. I didn't get the ending though. I didn't get who was behind it. That was. I. I, I I'm usually yeah, pretty good twist. at figuring that. Yes, that was a twist. But I did. Mm -hmm. I did see the other things coming. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we all knew it was gonna like end up with that, you know, big sum of money. So I think you know the simpleness and the predictability of the setting just eases in the viewer, even if you don't know the language, if, even if you don't know the games, and then even if you don't know the games, the rules are very, very simple, and then. In addition to that, you know, simpleness, predictability, the show just keeps you on the edge of your seat. You're wondering what's going to come up next. Who's going to be eliminated in the next round? Who's going to win that money? I mean, we all know. But so uh, I think all of those you know, factors in the show, plus, you know, the, the striking design, the costumes, the very, you know, uh, eerie, the music really creates the atmosphere of the tense environment. I think all of those factors really just, you know, helped make the show into a global success. Yeah. I want to ask you a bit more later about the sort of where its place is in Korean film, but and but mm -hmm. in in for a South Korean person today, what are there any is there anything else in particular that resonates? I thought how Ali, you know, the the single non-Korean character in the show who is also this uh, undocumented migrant worker from Pakistan. I thought the way he conducts himself and also how other people treat him in the show really reveals some of the true, um, these harsh realities that migrant workers face in Korea. Um, I'm not sure if you know, but there is a lot of racism in Korea, especially toward migrant workers. And the way Ali's you know, story is portrayed in Squid Game, you know, he hasn't been paid for several months, but there's nowhere to you know, file a complaint. If he does, chances are he will get deported because he's undocumented. He's you know, treated harshly by his boss. And even in the Squid Game, you see how 
he never addresses someone first by their name. He's always saying 사장님, which is a very respectful term like boss or sir or madam. And you see how you know, he acts very respectfully toward Koreans. And that's probably because so many migrant workers in Korea are actually often abused. They're often uh, treated as if they're at the bottom of the social hierarchies. And the way that, you know, Ali conducts himself, how the other contestants treat him, it really, you know, reveals a true glimpse of how, you know, social minorities are treated in Korean. So in a way, I was actually impressed to see how Squid Game could kind of be viewed as the social commentary right. on how migrant workers are discriminated, even though they take up of so much of Korea's labor. I mean, Ali is shown to be this really, really strong character. And yeah, that's kind of like a symbol of how much migrant workers make up for the labor. And what are some of the other themes that the show reflects in terms of Korea today, politically and societally? Yeah, definitely. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is the huge socioeconomic inequalities and the gap between the rich and poor. I think um, especially a lot of the younger generation when they were watching the show could resonate with the themes because you know nowadays um, just the gap is becoming bigger and bigger and the pandemic is just worsening it. And so a lot of young people are starting to feel that you know the very conventional idea of labor like going to work nine to five you know the office work and then you get your salary you save up and you buy an apartment and a home that kind of dream is becoming more and more you know outside of their their boundaries it's becoming more and more difficult to achieve that whereas for the elder generation they were mostly you know compensated and always rewarded for their hard work now the younger generation feels that no matter how much you know how how hard they work how you know how they study hard to get good grades and go to like the best universities they may never achieve that dream of you know getting married you know owning a house having children and so a lot of young people today feel very discouraged and they start to like discriminate themselves in terms of class like you're born with you know a gold spoon in your mouth and I'm not I'm born with like the dirt spoon so they call themselves the spoon generation mm -hmm. and yeah it's really sad and they believe that your background and your family inheritance are much more important than your your own hard work in achieving success and because of that I think a lot of people start to believe that um the idea of labor is becoming more and more devalued and they're starting to look towards stock markets and cryptocurrency like bitcoins and nfts uh more you know alternative ways to bring in cash to the flow so i think those are one of the things that the show really resonates with younger viewers and I wanted to ask you about the female characters, Saibyuk and uh, Player212. I think her name is Han Minyo. Am I saying that mm -hmm. right? Han Minyo? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, how would you say that women are depicted in this series? To be honest, as a you know, female myself, I think the character depictions for female characters are quite flat. I don't think they're really in depth as, you know, um, Sangu or Ki-hun or even the old man's character or even you know the 
uh, forgot his name, but the younger brother of the front man, the cop who's, you know, trying right, to the, the uh, reveal man. everything. Yeah, they all have this very rich story behind them and, you know, they have a chance to tell them. And we, we do get to hear Sebyeok's and also Jiyoung's story in episode six and, you know, how Sebyeok, you know, it's is a North Korean refugee. Right? Right, and she went through all this trouble, and she only now has her brother, and blah blah blah. And like Jiang also had family troubles, domestic violence, but we don't really hear anything else from Minya or other female characters. And also, I've noticed a lot. Some of the games are actually based more on strength, and there weren't any f- games that girls used to enjoy when they were children. So like. I've had all these games that I used to play when I was like a little child and I didn't see any of those games depicted in the show. So that was kind of disappointing in a sense, Um, especially I think uh, Minya's character can be viewed as problematic in a sense because um, she voluntarily sells sex to get on the stronger team. And uh, I think I read an interview where the director said that uh, it's it's more to show how people can uh, do desperate things when, you know, they become in a desperate state and, you know, they have to live. Sometimes you, you want to do something that you don't want to do. But I think as, you know, Korean female, that's that's also kind of a dangerous way to depict women, especially when there is a rise of anti-feminism in South Korea. I think the idea that women will voluntarily, you know, sell sex to get ahead or to get something for their means might actually feed into what a lot of incels believe in. So I'm actually not happy with the way that um, the female characters are portrayed. and maybe there's a chance that, you know, the show can redeem that in season two. So, yeah. And uh, just uh, briefly about the Ilnam character, the older, the general, mm-hmm. I will spoil and say that he is, he's the one that, that it turns out um, has been behind this whole thing. Right. What does he represent? And the VIPs and the whole structure of this thing? Yeah, I think all of those people, I mean, they're these very, very privileged men. And, you know, again, interesting, you don't see any, you know, female VIP or, you know, female CEO among them. So it, 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 I think it also kind of maybe unconsciously reveals how South Korea is this very patriarchal society where a lot of the privileged men, they haven't really cared or maybe they still don't care about the structural inequalities of society where the younger generation is still struggling to find a permanent job a stable job to to earn a salary to make ends meet while they're just you know throwing money around and seeing people you know harm themselves just for the pleasure so I think that also says something about how maybe those you know, who are privileged and fortunate should uh, try to think about how to maybe correct these kind of systematic inequalities. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before we get into more of the aesthetics of it, that this is, I was reading your very interesting commentary in the Washington Post about how this is resonating with South Korean politicians. Yeah, so like I said before, a lot of younger people believe that your fam- family inheritance or your, your background is way more important than your own hard work in achieving success. And that's because there has been a number of cases in which Uh, like sons or daughters of very high profile people were able to get, you know, jobs easier or, you know, grants or any kind of position easier. And once that is revealed, of course, you know, the younger generation feels very betrayed and they're very upset about that. And and I think politicians, um, especially those who are running for president in the next election are claiming that they will uh, get rid of this kind of corruption. They will make sure they will create a fair society. Um, But I don't know. I mean, actually, I think Squid Game shows you how there can't be a fair society. I mean, the Squid Game guards. Yeah, it's actually very uh, the opposite. They claim that everything will be fair. We will conduct the game so that nobody has an advantage. But you see all these loopholes. You see Minya using a lighter during the the candy game. And you see none of the guards, you know, pointing her out or anything. So she had already had an advantage. So you see all these people with loopholes in the system. And I think the Squid Game actually shows how you can't create a fair society. There's already too much, uh, too many you know, inequalities just rooted in the system. It's... Which I've seen as intentional on the part of writer mm-hmm. director Dong Hyuk, that, that that's what he wanted to. Would you agree? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So talking about, I just mentioned the director, Hwang Dong Hyuk, he's had a few big movies before there's we've been reading in the past that this took many many years and he was he Mm -hmm. had to sell his computer I think there he said that there were 10 different production companies that didn't want to do this um what is his place in Korean cinema and television I have not seen all of his films but there was one film I was really impressed with it's called Silence or maybe there is a different title called like The Crucible I think uh, on Wikipedia, it says both uh, silenced and the crucible. It's a film about these uh, young minors, young children who were sexually assaulted in institutions, and how you know this this teacher reveals everything and fights for the young children. And that was based on a true incident. And after that film, so many viewers who were you know, affected by that film uh, started you know arguing for and started petitioning for uh, law reformation. And so that I think after that, South Korean Assembly passed this bill so that, you know, the statute of limitation for uh, sexual assault for minors would be, uh, it was gone. So I think for a film to have that kind of, you know, effect on society is, it's huge. And so he's always been interested in class injustice and societal issues. 
Yeah, I I, I haven't seen his other two films. No, at least but, in that one. Yeah. Yeah. In in a sense, I have I have a sense that he's interested in representing these kind of social political issues through his work. And I think that's that's incredible because we talk about, you know, which which candidate, which president will be able to uh, make a better society. But in I think in addition to that maybe it's not just one president, maybe it's not just a few politicians who can do the job, maybe, you know, art can also really make a change for the better. Earlier mentioning the aesthetics of this series, this sort of this mix between dystopia and these very bright colors, and what is he drawing upon in modern Korean popular culture, or is he? Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, well, I think, you know, the, the bright pink colors, they actually create this very tense, you know, kind of suffocating atmosphere. And then all the other set designs, like, you know, the playground or the place where the scary doll was, or, you know, the setting where they were playing marbles, you know, in that kind of really cute neighborhood area. I think that's all very reminiscent of the olden days of South Korea, like in the 80s or the early 90s. And I think a lot of that actually creates nostalgia for the viewers. So uh, in a sense, I think that tension, yeah. yeah. So the doll that you mentioned, isn't that mm -hmm. a doll from like South Korean school books that yeah, grown yeah. up with that doll? So that makes it sort of extra scary that that's this incredibly violent feature. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. When you enrolled in Korean elementary school and you receive your first textbook and you open it, there is a sentence that says like, I'm a boy, you're a girl, like, and the boy's name is Tosu and the girl's name is Younghee. So the doll actually represents Younghee. And so uh, I don't have any, you know, small children, but I'm actually curious to see how, you know, this, the small children react to, well, they're not actually supposed they, they to They shouldn't this, be seeing but, this. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, I think it's like, rated like for 18 and older yeah. so they, they should not see this but you know I mean if they if they ever did get to see it accidentally I I mean it would be so confusing for them because it's that you know friendly girl from the textbook and it, she's now you know complete monster what about that that's exactly sort of it these childhood games um contrasted with the absolutely I mean the violence in this show is brutal mm -hmm. I mean, or is it sort of a video game culture or I don't know what I'm getting at uh, I don't know. I mean, like I, I watch a lot of American TV most of the time. So for me, it, no, yeah, it's it just didn't seem like that violent. It was just like, oh, okay, just, you know, what you see on American TV. I think <laughs> no, I think it's this mix of the, the, as you were saying, these childhood games. And then suddenly mm -hmm. I think that's more striking than when the blood squirts on the pink walls type of thing. Yeah. So, you know, that kind of very familiar, ordinary setting with all that your childhood games and then that, you know, huge contrast all these violent, bloody, you know, things going on. I think that's also maybe, you know, a common theme we see in other Korean films and TV, like the film Parasite, it's just happening in an ordinary neighborhood, or maybe like, uh, there's another Netflix original called Sweet Home. It's also a Korean production and it's about, it's a dystopian setting. It's kind of a zombie flick, but it's, it's it also shows like, you know, how do we preserve humanity? How do we perform humanity in these kind of dystopian settings? So I think it, it's kind of like a common, you know, setting nowadays, staging a very ordinary, you know, neighborhood setting, and then, you know, something poof, happens. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of what dystopia is. The violence or the scary thing is mm -hmm. right here at 
with us. It's not far away anymore. Mm-hmm. The stars in this, I mean, the actors, this must be, we were huge before. I know a few of them have, have had big careers before. And I know there's a bunch of cameos and guest stars who, who were, mm-hmm. are really big stars there. But how is the fandom around the show? Yeah, I, I thought that was really interesting because Ki-hun was played by Lee Jung-jae. He's actually a really popular star in Korea. I mean, I've seen his debut when I was in like third grade, which was his like first TV drama. And it was it was a big hit. So he, he's a very, in my opinion, he's a very lucky person. His debut show was a huge hit and he had a really steady career of good films and, you know, TV dramas. And now he's like over 50 years old and he's suddenly this, big international superstar so and he's played mostly villains right yes he's played mostly villains in like in uh, this korean film called uh i don't know the english title like kwansang and also something else called deliver us from evil so he's mostly played villains but i remember his debut tv drama which was called hourglass and he was this very loyal trustworthy bodyguard he had like two lines in the entire show he was mostly somebody who would just like uh, protect the leading lady so i still kind of remember him as this you know very nice character from the show i saw in third grade and like you said there's a lot of very interesting cameos the front man played by Lee Byung-hun he's also really incredibly big star in korea one of the best actors um, and the person, the salesman who was doing the slapping at the start of the show, Kong Yu, he's one of the biggest yeah, TV yeah, heartthrob actors. He was in The Goblin and a lot of other things. Yeah, I saw that. And, he did, and, and they're right. There's many people on Twitter like, oof, they have him in a suit. He looks amazing. And I said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he was actually also the star for uh, the filmmaker's um, earlier one the called the silence the one i was talking oh, about right. with the uh, young oh, he's in yeah that. he was he was a star that. for that film too so i think yeah that's maybe how he got to be a cameo in this one and i think for sebyeok uh, jung hoyeon she's kind of a new rookie but it's been amazing to see how she has turned from this you know rookie model into this international superstar i really do hope she has a lot of good things a lot of good roles new TV shows coming her way. And uh, the guy who plays the younger brother, the cop, Wee Ha-jun, he's been around. Um, I saw him in a few TV dramas and also in this film called Gonjiam, uh, The Haunted Asylum. It's a horror flick, which was also directed by one of my friends. And he did a really good job in that film too. So I had I had my eye on him for a while and yeah, he's now a big yeah, superstar. Amazing. So. That's great. <laughs> yeah, finally, um, in I know Netflix is just, pumped in millions and millions for Korean content before this. But mm-hmm. what does this show and the success that came out of this mean for Korean film and TV? And Yeah, I did read somewhere that Netflix invested a lot in, in Korean originals. I also read somewhere that the, the entire budget for Squid Game was like one-tenth of the budget of The Crown. So maybe in wow. Netflix's opinion, Investing in Korean contents is a win-win for them. You know, Korean contents get more exposure. Netflix gets to create this, you know, amazing show with like one-tenth of the budget. So maybe it's a win-win. I can't believe that because both it sides. looks so expensive. You know, the, the set design, the music is incredible. The music is 
the same guy who did Parasite, I think. I think. Yes, Chong Jin. Yes, he's a really popular composer. Yeah, yeah. Incredibly good. And I mean, just all the incredible stars you were mentioning. That seems like right. a cheap price. Yeah. <laughs> they could just go yeah, film totally. some castles for the crown. <laughs> they don't really need that. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's great. Um, I also think um, the recent popularity of, you know, Korean pop culture maybe helped with Squid Game's uh, global success. Um, but in a way, a lot of people wonder if the Squid Game was specifically catered towards Western audiences. But I, I don't think the director specifically had in mind, like, okay, I'm going to make a show, you know, just so Americans or, you know, Europeans would, you know, something they would love. I think he created a very Korean-specific content and the universal themes in that show resonated with viewers all around the world, I think. And I think that's great, you know, in, in a sense. It, I mean, this is a time in the pandemic where there's so much, you know, anti-Asian hate, you know, all kinds of hate everywhere. So I think through this kind of content, through this kind of, you know, art, we can have discussions about, you know, things, things that we have in common, things that we resonate with and, you know, maybe that can help create, you know, a very peaceful conversation in a sense. Yes, I think so too. Dr. Zhang, thank you so much for your time. This was so interesting. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. We are gathered here today to give you permission to plan the wedding that you want. I'm Jessica Bishop. And I'm Sari Wienerman. And we're the hosts of the Bouquet Toss podcast. Today's couples have to juggle so many things, from family expectations to outdated traditions and what's currently trending. So to make it easier, we're going deep to figure out why we do weddings the way that we do, so you can decide what to keep and what to toss from your wedding day plans. You are cordially invited to subscribe to The Bouquet Toss wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. By the power vested in us, we pronounce you free to plan your day your way.